All right, so we've been in a series um, all month long called The Revolutionary. We've been talking about Jesus, and normally we have this really fancy video that sets it up, and then I, hey, everybody, let's talk about Jesus. Uh, But we're just going to dive in. So um, I, I don't know if you've ever had a moment where someone brought up or said something totally random right in the middle of a conversation and it didn't have to, anything to do with what everyone was talking about. Have you ever had that happen before, right? Where you're having this conversation and then somebody just inserts themselves into it or says something. So before I pastored churches and adults, I spent, my wife and I spent over a decade pastoring teenagers and leading youth programs. Um, and, and that moment happened a lot, especially with junior hires. And if you have junior hires, you spend any time around junior high school students, um, you know this happens a lot. So we would, we would uh, we, you know, we'd have 35 or 40 kids in the room. We're having discussion and we're going back and forth and we're talking about life and God and faith and the Bible and serious stuff. And all of a sudden, some random kid would say something like, do you think Yoda could beat Gandalf in a fight? And it's like, what? What? And because I'm severely ADD, I'm like, that's a really good question. I think I need to think about that for a minute. Or, or one time I was leading a group and this one kid who was super random, out of the blue, for some reason, raised his head and said, I'm wearing three pairs of underwear today. I was like, what? Okay, th- thanks for sharing. But whatever, whatever it was about, whatever they inserted, it was always distracting or confusing. And I think from the outside, today could sort of feel that way, especially if you've been here the last three weeks of this series. Because when you talk about all of the ways that Jesus was revolutionary, and you talk about all of the ways that Jesus changed the world, there are some obvious things that come immediately to mind. Even if you're a skeptic, or even if you're somebody who's an agnostic, or you're just not sure about all all this God and Jesus stuff. Because so many of the things that Jesus talked about or was known for are pretty significant, right? And and we've talked about a few of them in this series, things like grace and and truth. I mean, those are pretty big deals. Those are really central to the things that Jesus said and the things that he taught and the way that he lived and who he was. I mean, even something like we talked about last week, like, like the idea of good. I mean, those things make sense. But today is a little bit of a curveball because today we're going a, a, a slightly different direction and maybe talking about this conversation from a completely different perspective. And we're talking about the idea of beauty, which admittedly feels a little bit random and strange, as I said a second ago. I mean, after all, we, we only had four weeks in this series. We only planned for four weeks of it. I mean, we really could spend you know, every week in this series talking about how revolutionary Jesus was. And so, but we, we limited the series to four weeks. And of all the things that we could have talked about, why, why beauty? I mean, the other stuff kind of makes sense. Whether you believe Jesus was God or not, those things all seem like they belong in a conversation about Jesus. But beauty? I mean, why, why talk about it at all? I mean, is it possible? Is it even possible that something that seems to be as secondary and non-essential as beauty could be the thing that we're all searching for and the very force or the very power that would change not only our lives, but would change the world? So um, a thousand years ago, Vladimir the Great, who was the monarch in Kiev at the time, 
and he was agnostic, not religious, did not have a belief in God. When he rose to power, he began to look for a religion that he could adopt and institute in Russia that would help unify the Russian people. And so he sent delegations, he sent out teams of delegations to investigate all of the great faiths from all of the neighboring regions around Russia. And when they all returned, they all met together and all reported to him what they had found. And some of them had discovered religions that were really dour and somber and rigid. Others came and reported about faiths that were kind of abstract and more theoretical and just spent a lot of time just dabbling in philosophy. But some of, the, some of the folks that he sent out, one of the envoys, one of the delegations he sent out, they traveled to Constantinople and their report that they brought back was different because they actually had encountered Christianity for the first time in their life. And here's what they said. Here's what they said in their report. They said, they led us to the place where they worshiped their God. And we knew not in that moment whether we were in heaven or still on earth. For on earth, there is no vision, no such beauty. We don't even know how to describe it. We only know that from that experience that God dwells among men. We cannot and will not forget that beauty that we experienced. And they wrote that, that's actually found uh, in the primary chronicle of the scent that was by Prince Vladimir of Kiev to Constantinople. That, that that was their report that they came back. So Vladimir was so moved by their report that he actually began to explore the claims of Christianity and, and, and began to ask the questions and explore a life of faith himself and actually eventually stepped into and became a Christian, became a follower of Jesus as a result of that and ultimately adopted Christianity as the new faith for all of the entire Russian people. And it wasn't arguments over ethics. It wasn't apologetics. It wasn't philosophy that won him over. It was, it was aesthetics. It was the experience. It was beauty. And when you think about that, that's a little bit confusing, especially to those of us in America, in the Western world, because we're very intellectual and, you know, we're post-enlightenment, and everything's got to be an argument to be in, or, in order to be won over to something. But that's not what won him over. What won him over was beauty. Now, when it comes to beauty, I, I think it's easier for us to at least get, you know, get the whole conversation about God and beauty when we're talking about God. But Jesus, I mean, Jesus and beauty, I, I mean, at least with God, he's the creator of the universe, right? And everything he creates is beautiful and amazing and awe-inspiring. I mean, just look at the world around us, right? Just, just look at the pictures that are coming back from the new space telescope of the universe and, and the picture of, of our solar system. Creation moves us in that way, right? Whether it's the ocean waves that are crashing on the beach or a, a waterfall coming down a mountain or the massive size of the trees when you're walking through a forest or, or simply staring up at the sky full of stars at night. See, nobody, I, I think it's super interesting that nobody has to tell us that nature, that creation is actually good for us, that our souls just intuitively know. That when we're in a place where life is just overwhelming or we're stressed, that we got to get out, whether it's going to the desert or the mountains or the ocean, that there's something healing and restorative about just stepping into the beauty of God's creation. But God didn't have to create anything that way, right? He didn't have to create it beautiful. Like he, he could have just made it all utilitarian. I mean, just think about it. It wasn't enough for God to create one kind of flower, 
He could have just created one flower, but he didn't. He created thousands upon thousands of varieties and colors and species of flowers. It wasn't enough for him to create one kind of bird. He created thousands of different species of not just birds, but every animal out there. I mean, think of all the different colors and sounds and aromas and flavors that there are in the world. God could have created a world with just one color, cardboard brown. Or just one smell, cardboard. Or just one flavor, lima beans, which is kind of like cardboard. But he didn't, right? He created a world where things like tomatoes and onions and jalapenos grow. A world that has spices like salt and cilantro, knowing that one day some genius, some saint would chop it all up and put it all together and create pico de gallo. And that somebody would dry and grind corn into meal and create tortillas. And that eventually they would get baked into chips. And then one day we'd pair it all together for the glorious taste of heaven of chips and pico de gallo. See, beauty exists because God exists. Everything he touches is an expression of his beauty. In fact, in the opening scene of our origin story in the scriptures in Genesis chapter 1, we see God creating. And as he's creating, it tells us that over and over and over again that God would create something and it says that and that he saw that it was good. And he saw that it was good. And he saw that it was good. And the word that actually gets used there that was originally written in Hebrew could either be translated into English as good, like it is, or it could actually also be translated as beautiful, which I think kind of changes the way the whole thing feels and reads, the way it lands, right? When, when you're reading the scriptures and you hear God create light, and the sun, and the land, and the plants, and the forests, and the trees, and the animals, and he says, and it's beautiful, and that's beautiful. And then he gets to humanity, and he says, and that is very beautiful. Because he wasn't talking about appearance, although I'm sure it all looked amazing, right? He, he was talking about essence. See, see, when it says that God saw that it was good, it's not a reference to him like looking at it and just checking it out, but it, it's, it's talking about his understanding that he perceived, that he understood, that he declared that it was good and it was beautiful which really kind of speaks to the profound difference between what's pretty and what's beautiful, right? Like pretty is superficial and it's surfacey. It's about symmetry and attraction, but it's also frail and fleeting. But beauty, beauty is something altogether different. Beauty is deep. Beauty has substance. It's about soul and grit, and it's really durable and enduring. And honestly, there's nothing wrong with pretty. It's just not beauty. And the problem we run into is when we actually begin to confuse one for the other. See, because pretty can catch the corner of your eye from across the crowded room, but you have to come in close and stay a while and dig into the real story to actually see beauty. Pretty will attract us, but beauty actually moves us. 
Beauty is one of those things that can be really hard to define, but you know it when you see it, right? It's your, it's your baby's first breath. It's that moment where forgiveness is extended when it's not deserved, right? It's two people, two lovers growing old together, having spent a lifetime loving one another. It's a moment of silence in a world of chaos. It's somebody sacrificing on behalf of a stranger. And here's the thing, not everything is pretty, but everything does have the potential to be beautiful, which I know is kind of absurd. I mean, everything can be beautiful. Well, there's a place in the Old Testament where a guy named Solomon is riding and he's walking us through the complexity of life. And as he's painting this picture of the realities of life and the tensions of the human experience, this is what he says in Ecclesiastes chapter three. He says, for everything, there is a season. Before I continue reading, this is a deep and profound truth because we like to believe and we like to live in our life Like there's only one season. That season is up and to the right. That season is growth. It's positivity. It's all good that we never lose. We only win. The only season we want in our life is the winning season. And Solomon's like, wait, 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 time out. That's not how life works. For everything, there is a season. See, you... Some of us are, have been so frustrated and so messed up in our life, and this is part of the reason, is because we don't actually know what season we're in. And so we keep trying to live in a specific way, wanting our life to be in one season, and we're actually in a completely different season. And when you try to harvest when it's not time to harvest, when you try to plant when it's not time to plant, things will die. Things don't go the way that you want. And so he says, for everything, there is a season, a time for every activity under heaven. He says, a time to be born, and there is a time to die. There's a time to plant, and there's a time to harvest. There's a time to kill, and a time to heal. There's a time to tear down, and a time to build up. There is a time to cry and a time to laugh. There's a time to grieve and there's a time to dance. There's a time to scatter stones and a time to gather them back. A time to embrace. There's a time to turn away. There's a time to search and a time to quit searching. There's a time to keep And there's a time to throw away. There's a time to tear. And there's a time to mend. A time to be quiet. And all the parents in the room said, amen. And there's a time to speak. There's a time to love and a time to hate. There's a time for war and a time for peace. And as he's thinking about it, he says, he says, what do people really get for all their hard work? I have seen the burden that God has placed on all of us. So this is one of those kind of existential moments that Solomon's having. This is kind of his like life sucks and then you die moment that Solomon's like being very honest about. 
He's going, look, life is this crazy roller coaster and it's full of extreme experiences. And some of them we want and some of them we don't. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> but he's going, I can tell you what you don't get to do. You don't get to pick and choose. And he comes to the end. He's like, and you, what do we even really get for how hard life is? What an incredible burden God has laid or placed on all of us. So do you, feel, do you feel it? Can you feel the weight of what he's saying? Do you feel how heavy and powerful and kind of depressing yet sober assessment of life that this is? But he doesn't stop there. He ends this whole conversation with a stunning observation and conclusion. In verse 11, he says this, yet God has made everything beautiful. In its time, he has planted eternity in the human heart, but even so, people cannot see the whole scope of what he's doing of God's work from beginning to end. Every time I read this, I'm like, wait, 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 wait. Talk about a curveball, Solomon. Like, everything is made beautiful in its time, everything. And then I just worked my way back through his list, right? So death, like back-breaking work, killing, something being torn down, crying, grief, your life's work falling apart, being rejected, giving up on something, throwing something that you just deeply loved, having to give that up or throw it away, watching something be torn apart, having to keep your mouth shut, hate, War, all of that, Solomon, all of those things can be made beautiful. To which he would say, no, but also maybe. Not now, but maybe later. Not, not in every way, but maybe in the most important ways they can be. That somehow God makes all things beautiful in its time. See, I, I think beauty is actually really surprising that way, that we discover it in unusual places and in unusual circumstances. And, and you've had experiences like this in your life, right? Where what happened to you, what you went through, it wasn't pretty. In fact, it was ugly. But somehow something beautiful came out of it, right? That thing was painful and dark and you don't ever want to go back there again, but you're grateful for it because something powerful and real and transformational and beautiful came out of it. See, I think part of what Solomon is describing for us is that like all of life is this story of this ongoing tension, this ongoing struggle, this ongoing conflict between tragedy and beauty, that life is simultaneously burdensome and beautiful. And, and we get stuck kind of gravitating towards one or the other. And it's because we just want it, we just want it to be one thing. But he's going, you can't escape that they're both there. He's going, while, while we all have our own experiences and our own stories, we will all have this common experience. We will all find ourselves in times where our lives are filled with overwhelming pain and overwhelming sorrow, but also times where our lives will be filled with unbelievable joy and unbelievable celebration. 
And so what are we, how are we supposed to make sense of all of this? How are we supposed to, to make sense of life? And where is God in all of it? Because that's the struggle, right? Like, God, how could you allow all of this pain and brokenness? Where are you at in the middle of our tragedy? When you read what Solomon wrote, it's as if he's saying there's, there's two narratives to the human story. Yes, there's the narrative of tragedy. It's undeniable. You cannot escape it. But he's going, that's not the only part of the story. There's also the narrative of beauty. And I think part of what he's communicating here is that we are the authors of the story of our tragedy. But God is the author of the story of our beauty. That this is what God does. This is his specialty. It's what he's become known for. So check this out in Isaiah chapter 61, beginning with verse 1, it says this. It says, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me, for the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to comfort the brokenhearted and to proclaim that captives will be released and prisoners will be freed. And he sent me to tell those who mourn that the time of the Lord's favor has come and with it the day of his anger against his enemies. And to tell all who mourn that he will give a crown of beauty for ashes, a joyous blessing instead of mourning, festive praise instead of despair. He's going, look, the thing that's so amazing about God is that he takes the broken story of our lives, the story of our tragedy and pain and disappointment that we are writing, that we are the authors of, that, and he somehow transforms that into this thing of beauty in time, in its time, in his time. So yeah, like God and beauty kind of makes sense, but Jesus and beauty, what's the connection? Where does all that fit together? So there's this remarkable moment in Luke chapter four, which is in the New Testament. So the first few books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, all named for people who were disciples, who were followers of Jesus, who recorded different aspects of what Jesus said and did. And in Luke chapter four, Luke records the story. It's actually really, really early in Jesus's story. It's before all of the craziness. It's before all of the crowds. It's before the disciples. It's before the miracles. And so Jesus gets baptized by John the Baptist. And it's that moment he comes up out of the, the, the water and there's a voice from heaven and a dove. I mean, this incredible moment. And then he goes out into the, the desert for 40 days and 40 nights. He doesn't eat and he's tempted with evil. He's tempted by the devil. This is right after that moment. This is Jesus coming back and he's ready to introduce himself to the world. Things are about to get ready to take off. And so he goes to the synagogue, he goes to the temple right at the time when everybody's there to worship and he walks over and he grabs the scroll. They hand the scroll to him to open, to read the scriptures. And what passage of scripture does he pick to read to introduce himself to the world? He picks Isaiah 61, which we just read. And so he reads it. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me. He reads all of those verses. And when he gets done, everybody's just stunned. Everybody's staring at him. You can read, Luke says, all eyes were glued on him. What is he gonna say next? That was incredible. And Jesus rolls up the scroll and he hands it back to the guy. And he says, all of that, that was about me. That is who I am. All of that is here now and it's coming true in me and because of me and through me and it's all for you. I mean, it was an absolutely 
stunning and breathtaking moment. See, Jesus himself is the the declaration that God, who is the author of all things beautiful, that he doesn't separate himself from us in the middle of the story of our tragedy, but he steps into our tragedy with us to create beauty. Jesus was the full expression of the wonder and the majesty and the beauty of God. In Jesus, we see that this is maybe the most profound part, the most profound reality of who God is and what Jesus came to do. That God, just, God doesn't just create beauty outside of our tragedy. He doesn't create beauty simply in contrast to our tragedy, but God takes our brokenness and our tragedy and our pain, and he creates beauty from the material of our darkest moments and our deepest pain. That is revolutionary. That is life-changing. That is a game-changer. God makes everything beautiful in its time for you, for me, for all of us. See, Jesus insisted Beauty is revealed not in our lives, or it's revealed in our lives, not in the, when, we, when life is just perfect, right? When we reach perfection, when everything goes perfect, but in the repurposing of all of the broken stuff, all the painful stuff, all of the dark stuff. And, and we've all seen this, right? The sort of beauty that can only grow out of pain, where, where a child who, the, the horrific Reality of a child who's abused or abandoned or orphaned grows up to adopt children in that same situation so that they have somebody who loves them and cares for them and they have a home. A survivor helping other victims find healing. I mean, you could just go down the list. You actually have examples of this in your own story. When Hansi and I got married, we got married on August 11th, 1995. 27 years. Last week, we went to this marriage retreat, and um, it was super cool. We had a fantastic time. There was only, it was only five total couples, and um, we had been married longer than all of them had been alive. It was, except for one. It was really sad. I was like, man, that is, how did this happen? But when we had been married five or six years and decided to try to start our family, um, No matter what we did, we could not get pregnant. So we went through a series of tests and began to discover that there were fertility issues and complications between the both of us. And doctors began to tell us, like, look, we're not saying it can't happen, but you're you're, going to need some help. And so we went to a fertility clinic in Roseville, California, and had some great doctors and began to go down that road. And, man, it was just gut-wrenching. If you've ever suffered with through fertility issues or gone through like the shots and you know, I was giving her shots every day in her stomach and just the whole thing and, and, and did some artificial inseminations and a couple of in vitros and none of it, none of it worked. And it was just so gut-wrenching and painful to walk through that process. But I, I have to tell you, like, there was no way for us to know what God wanted to build for our family. And so we have four children, they're all adopted. And he created and built this, he wrote a story that's 
so, like, I couldn't, if, if I sat down to try to script my life, it wouldn't compare to what he's done. This beautiful thing that grew out of one of the most painful experiences of our life. So then the question is, if God is the source of beauty and Jesus is the beautiful one, how is it possible that Jesus could step into history, into our story, and that we miss it and we not recognize it? Because in, in Isaiah chapter three, chapter 53, verses 2 and 3, he actually talks about that this is going to happen. Describing Jesus, it says that he had no beauty or majesty that would attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by humanity and a man of suffering, familiar with pain, like one who, from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. What, what an interesting description. How is it that absolute beauty was right in front of us, but we couldn't see it? How did we reach a point where the beautiful actually looked hideous to us that we had to turn away? We wouldn't even look at it. Well, the truth is, like, the explanation for that is something that you and I have experienced in our own life. So I, I love being a dad. I remember hearing early on when our oldest was just a baby, the adage that kids don't know what they like. They like what they know. And when you think about it, it's really true, right? That in the course of our life, we've run across families and friends and kids. There's kids who love classical music and sitting down, you know, very young and reading books and they can't wait to sit down and play these long, drawn out games of chess. And we all look at that and go, wow, that's incredible. But the truth is, it's not because they were somehow born with refined tastes and sensibilities, it's because of what they were exposed to and what they experienced in their life from their parents, right? It's because it's what they know. The music that they know is classical music, so they love it. And that is true whether you're talking about music or books or games or food. So um, in like 2002-ish, I was going back to school. I'd been in ministry a while. I decided to go get my business degree and finish uh, my degree. And so I took a couple of psychology classes. I really liked them in the course of that. So, um, and I, I'm like, my personality is one of those things that like when I hear something, I'm like, that's really interesting. I'm going to go try to implement that or test that theory or experiment with that and see if that's true. So I remember in one of the psychology classes, a basic psychology class, they talked about, hey, we're not born, human beings are not born with any inherent food aversions. They're all learned, right? Every food aversion you have, every food aversion your kids have, it's all learned. Now, if you have an allergy or something like that, that's different. But just like the, oh, I don't like that or I won't eat that, they learn that. You learn that, I learn that. So I was like, that's really interesting. So I'm gonna go test this out. So we had a baby at the time. Kaylee was only one year old and we put her at the table and I would be like, give her some apple and then I would cut up an onion and then just feed it to her. And she would and she would make a face, but I'd be like, and you know, they, they talked and like they, they're reading and reacting and responding based on your, and so I'm like, ooh, that's nummy, huh? And she's like, and then she just started just eating whole chunks of onion and she just loved it. We'd go to a restaurant and I, we were able to get her to just suck on lemons that they'd bring to the table. She was, just, she was just sucking on like it was her favorite thing. And everybody's like, oh my gosh, how is she doing? Because my child is a science experiment. That's why, because I did this to her. 
Right? And so if you're a parent of a picky eater, I know this is hard to he- hear, but picky eaters aren't born, they're made. You made them, you did that to yourself. Because all science tells us that how you engage a child in their experience of music or play or food or whatever it is, it actually shapes their tastes. It shapes their likes and their dislikes, their preferences and their appetites. And you know what? The same is true for you and me, right? Our experience shapes our tastes. Like, have you ever known somebody who just kept being drawn towards the wrong kind of people or the wrong kind of relationships? Like something in them was drawn to the tragedy or the tragic or the brokenness in other people. And so they just kept going to the same kind of relationship and they just, I don't know why it keeps ending this way. Why? Because our experience shapes our taste. You have a taste for messed up people. And I wonder if that's not exactly what has happened to us, to humanity, in our relationship with God. Because most of us have lived our lives outside of any experience with God. And so is it possible that we lost our taste for him, for what's truly beautiful? That we lost our ability not only to see his beauty, but the ability to see the beauty that he's creating around us and for us and in the lives of the people that we're connected to. We can't see it. And it doesn't mean that it's not a better life, that it doesn't exist. It just means this is just all we know. So we just, we just turn away. Isaiah says that we looked at Jesus, we could see no beauty in him, nothing mad, majestic or divine, nothing to draw us to him. So one of my favorite sections of scripture is actually a prayer. It's found in Ephesians chapter one. The apostle Paul is writing to a group of people that he had spent life, part of his life with to start a church in a, in a city called Ephesus. And he writes this letter talking to them about Jesus and faith and what it looks like. And this is what he writes in Ephesians chapter one, verse 18. He says, I pray that your hearts will be flooded with light so that you can see, right? It's the word that it gets translated as see in other places. But he's not talking about with your eyes so that you can understand the confident hope that he has given to those that he has called, his holy people who are his rich and glorious inheritance. And I also pray that you would understand that you would see the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe him, that this is the same power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the place of honor at God's right hand. And so he's going, look, this is my prayer. I want you to be able to see what you currently can't see that your heart would be flooded with light so that you can actually see the one whose power and beauty will change your life. And he's going, my prayer is that your hearts would be flooded with light so that you can begin to understand, that you could perceive this beautiful thing that God has done and is doing in you and for you. That there's beauty and life and hope for you no matter who you are or what you're going through right now. And he says, I so badly want you to be able to, see, to be able to see the incredible greatness of God's power for you. The same power that God used to raise Jesus from the dead is the same power that he uses to bring beauty from our tragedy out of the brokenness and fragmentation of our lives, out of the ashes, bringing beauty. I, I wonder in your life how the hardest thing that you're going through right now will become beautiful in its own time. I wonder. See, Solomon said, we can't see the full scope of what God's doing, 
See, there's something that you're in the middle of that's dark and hard, maybe painful, maybe tragic, and you cannot see the full scope of what God is doing, but he's in the middle of that, getting all that material to make something beautiful and powerful from it. In Isaiah chapter 43, there's this interesting conversation between God and some of his people. His people, they were stuck in a pretty dark place. So much so that they can't imagine a different future. They can't imagine what freedom looks like. They can't imagine what beauty looks like. They're fixated on the tragedy that they're caught up in because they have been oppressed and enslaved by the Babylonians. And some of them begin to talk about, remember, remember when the stories from when this happened to our you know, ancestors, when they were enslaved in Egypt? That's who God is. And God begins to pipe into the conversation. And he says, forget, forget the former things. Stop dwelling on them. Stop wishing for a different past. And then he goes on and says this. He says, see, I'm doing a new thing, a beautiful thing, a life-giving thing. Even now, it's springing up. But do you not perceive it? Can you even see it? Because there is a difference between what you can see and what you perceive, what you really see. So many times in our lives, it's only in retrospect, right? Looking back that we can actually begin to see all the beautiful things that God was doing and God has made for us and of us. Romans chapter 8, verse 18, the same guy that wrote the prayer in Ephesians, he wrote these words. He says, our present sufferings, our present tragedy are not worth the comparing, not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. If you're new to the Bible, anytime you see the word glory in scriptures, you can actually take it to mean or you can substitute the word beauty. Glory, majesty, splendor, grandeur, beauty. And he says it's, he's like, the stuff, the, the mess, the pain, the brokenness, the suffering, it's not even worth comparing to the beauty that's going to be revealed in us. And he says it's not revealed to us or even just for us, but it's revealed in us. Part of what he's telling us is that God's capacity and God's ability for creating beauty is infinitely greater than your capacity and your ability for creating tragedy in your life. So much so that the ashes of this moment, the ashes of this painful season, the ashes of your most painful experiences, the ashes of your tragedy aren't even worth comparing to the beauty that he wants to create and is creating in your life. At the beginning, I talked about Vladimir the, the Great and the change he had in his life and the change he brought to Russia. You don't think it makes a difference a little over 100 years ago, a great Russian novelist, Dostoevsky. 
he wrote these words. He was a man of deep faith. He said, beauty will save the world. He wrote it in a novel called The Idiot. I, I couldn't help but wonder that domino that fell with Vladimir, that experience of beauty that changed his life and ultimately the course of a nation that a thousand years from that moment, almost a thousand years, a man would begin to write books, write novels. And one of his observations in one of his novels would be that beauty will save the world. Is that a coincidence? Probably not. By the way, the cross is the ultimate collision of tragedy and beauty. Jesus took humanity's greatest moment of tragedy and he made it our greatest moment of beauty. You guys, that is life-changing. That is revolutionary. That we get to trade in our brokenness and our ashes and our tragedy for his healing and his glory and his beautiful. What an incredible trade. So I wonder, again, what part of your life is God wanting to make beautiful in its time? What is the thing that you've just decided there's no hope here. Maybe you've been holding out. Maybe you haven't been convinced by some argument at some intellectual level. Maybe there's questions that you're just like, if God is so good or if he's real, how come this? Maybe, just maybe, and God's wanting you to see the beauty of who he is and what he's done. He's not wanting to overwhelm your questions. He's inviting you to bring your questions and experience the love that he has for you. That you would come to the cross and lay down your tragedy and take on his life and his beauty. Let's pray together.